Hey y'all, welcome to RUF. Uh, my name is Simon Stokes. If I've met you, I would love to meet you at some point and maybe get to sit down and talk with you and hear how your life is going and what's happening in your life. Um, I've had a lot of people ask me in the last couple of weeks, like, what is RUF? Like, what do y'all do? What are y'all about? Um, people are trying to figure a lot of that stuff out. And I just want to say this, that RUF is a community of students here on campus who are seeking to learn how to love God and love their neighbor and love this place. But we're actually bound by this greater conviction that God actually loves us and that God loves our neighbors and that God loves this world. And we believe that God's made this known to us in the person of Jesus, who's the embodiment of God's love and purpose for our world. And so we believe that through relationship with him, we have access to God's love and we can be changed by it, which is why we do things like large group or do small groups or we sit down and talk with one another and are pastored and cared for and prayed for. So whether you're curious about the Christian faith uh, or cynical about it or you know, very committed to it, our hope is that RUF uh, is a place where each one of us can encounter Jesus and ultimately experience his love. And so that's what we're about. Um, if you're asking that question right now, that's kind of my general overview answer to it. And this semester, uh, we're going through the book of Exodus, uh, which is an Old Testament book. Probably a book that not many of us have studied before, and I'm not really into kind of giving like a long description of what the book we're going to study is uh, before uh, we jump into it. But I'll just say this. Exodus is the second book of the Bible. It is a book that actually, if you read the Hebrew, begins with the word and, because it picks up literally right where the book of Genesis ends. And it just says, and, and there, there we are in the next book. Um, but it's about God taking his people out of slavery and into freedom. And if you're looking for that, that's what we're talking about this semester. And we're talking about it through Jesus. So that's my intro to the book of Exodus. Um, but before we get in to things, I just want to pray for us and we'll get started. So let me pray. Uh, Father, thank you um, for your work tonight in our lives, uh, through your word and through your spirit, uh, by being together, by knowing one another, um, through the work of your son, Jesus. Would you abide with us tonight, Lord? Would you be with us? Would you watch over us? Uh, wherever we come from, however we come, would you heal us and bind us up? Would you make us new and make us whole? For your own sake, in your name we pray. Amen. Cool. Why did God let this happen? Where are you, God? We've all asked these questions before. Houston is almost certainly asking that question right now. You can ask it about yourself. Where was God when my parents got divorced? We went to church. Where was he when I gave my heart to another person and then they broke it? I thought I loved them. If you've ever been in a where are you God situation, you should know that this is not a new problem and you are not alone. In fact, it's one that often gets raised in scripture. The book of Job is all about that question. The Psalms, the prayer book of God's people, often add their own question to that question, which is how long, O Lord? Like, not only where are you, but how long is this going to last? Look, Exodus begins with God's people living in this really intense, where are you, God, situation. I mean, the whole history of Israel, they can look back and they can say, we've got some pretty low points. Egypt is the only place that they look back and they say that is a place that we're going to call the Iron Furnace. It's bad. It's really bad. And they're in a where are you God situation. And the start of the Exodus story is all about what it looks like for God to remember his people 
and to answer that question of where are you. What I want to suggest to you tonight is this, is that to deal with those emotions now, or to deal with what's happened in your past, that you need to know that God is a God who works through and even uses where are you God situations to your good. So tonight I just want to follow the start of this story and try to answer that question of how can God be at work in bad things? How can God be at work at bad things? So I'm going to read the first chapter of Exodus. We're going to talk about that, and then I'm going to read the second chapter of Exodus. We're going to talk about that. And that's the outline for tonight. So, <laughs> um, This is Exodus chapter 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulon, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons, Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, and he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore... They set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Python and Ramses. But the more they are oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. And all their work they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it's a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they're vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives. I know, it's, they're lying to him. <laughs> And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that's born of the Hebrews you shall cast in the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Y'all, as we start this, we run immediately into the mystery of what is God doing in this situation. Look, Israel was there because God had told their ancestors to move there. And it says that God blessed their people for being there. They're fruitful and they multiply. The Israelites did not make a mistake in going to Egypt. There was no sin on their part involved in that. Do you get the point here? That there are plenty of times when bad things happen to us, and we can draw kind of a pretty straight line as to why this particular thing came out. Like if you drive under the influence and you get pulled over, that's your fault. Usually, you know, in our culture we call something like that karma. I did a bad thing and like the universe paid me back. As though the universe is this conscious thing. But the Bible has a really different take on stuff. And the Bible's position is that God is in charge of everything from the tiniest mote of dust floating through this room to the greatest structures of galaxy just kind of hovering around in the universe. That he orders all things so that neither good or evil happen apart from his will. That there is no karma. There's only God's will and work in and through his creation. Which is mysterious. But it's something that has its fingerprints all through the story. I mean, imagine yourself here. Imagine that you're a slave and everyone you're related to has been a slave 
for like 400 years. You're building cities in the desert. There's no air conditioning. There's no showers. There's no running water. Someone can beat you at the drop of a hat. You're making bricks all day in the sun, or you're carving gods with the head of a jackal and the body of a man. The government is trying to make you kill your own children so there won't be too many of you. Look, and you could be wondering, what did we do to deserve this? God told us to move here. Right from the get-go, the Bible might be saying, it's not your fault. Maybe you're feeling the effects of life in a fallen world. Look, there are times when you can make the most informed decisions and do all the right things, and you can still get hurt. That's just part of the collateral of living in a fallen world. I heard a story recently that sounded really cool on the front end. And, <laughs> spoiler, uh, but there was this couple who wanted to sail across the Pacific Ocean and kind of sail around the world with their two young kids. And the man and his wife had been married and lived on this boat with their kids kind of before they went out to sea. And the dad is this experienced sailor with a Coast Guard master's license, which, if you don't know what that means, it takes a year to get. Like, you have to live on the ocean and work a vessel on the ocean for a year. It means you can, yeah, you were able to operate a commercial vessel, which the guy had done. The American uh, Boat and Yacht Council like, kind of weighed in on this thing, and they said, you know, there are actually lots of families that live on boats, and sail around the world with kids of all ages. Like, you know, for most of us, that's kind of a weird thing. But this actually is sort of routine. Like, sort of on the adventurous side of routine. But it's routine. It happens. And so this family has been preparing for this trip for four years. And the dad is super experienced. The mom has been living on the boat, so she's also very exper- experienced. They bought all the safety gear. They did all the careful steps you do to make a ship as safe as possible. But on day 16 of this trip... They're out in the middle of the ocean, and they hit some really bad weather. And, you know, you might expect something like this in an ocean crossing, but then this thing happens called they got broached, which is sailing language for when a wave pushes the boat onto its side and part of the boat goes underwater. And it stayed that way for just a few seconds, and it comes up, but as it does, the force of the waves and the water break, start to break the boat and cause cracks to form in it, which is bad, right? And then some of them get worse and worse and worse, and the boat's taking on water. And then the youngest kid, which is like a year old, gets sick, and the antibiotics they brought on the boat don't work. And so the mom and the dad are starting to really kind of panic, and their radio is no longer working, because, you know, if you get your radio wet with seawater, it stops to work. And their satellite phone stops working. And they're left with this decision where, like, this kind of final ultimatum thing is that if you push this red button, it's literally a big red button, if you push this red button, then the Coast Guard will come. They'll sail from as far away as they need to sail, and they'll get your boat, or they'll get you off your boat, but they'll scuttle the boat, which means they'll just sink it. And so they pray about it, and they think about it, and they push the button. And they lost everything. And they got rescued. But they lost their boat, they lost their dream, they lost their home. And people went online and they read blogs about that these parents have been keeping. And surprise, surprise, this being the internet, people found something to get upset about. But this couple did everything that they could do to have this amazing experience with their family and it still didn't work out. That in a fallen world, even when you do everything in our power to keep bad things from happening, we can still get hit. In bad ways. Look, some of you are going to start off at UNC and find that this semester is just one of the hardest semesters of your life. 
that for all the AP classes you took, for all the kind of glittering social gifts that you have, it's just insanely difficult to move to a new place and have to meet a ton of new people. That's just hard. I'm sorry, it's just really hard. And there's no shortcut through that. And we get that at REF. That's why we do you know, retreats and small groups and have socials. But it's hard for us to move into a situation like that, even if you're prepared. You know, in a world where parents get divorced, where sexual assault happens, where the effects of institutional racism and slavery are not just part of a Bible story, but they're part of the American story, we can wonder, is this my fault that I'm getting run over by these things? And the Bible's response is not necessarily, though you may be feeling the effects of that. So how can God be at work in this sort of thing? How does he work in this? Let's read Exodus chapter 2. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young woman walked beside the river. And she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister, that's Moses' sister, said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother, so Moses' mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I'll give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she, drew, she said, I drew him out of the water. And one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? And he answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priests of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water the father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. And when they came home to their father Raoul, he said, How is it you've come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that we may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. And during those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Look at the shape of Moses' story here. That if you were to go back and you were to ask one of the Hebrew slaves, where do you think is the safest place in Egypt to grow up? What do you think they would say? I would wager it would be as a member of Pharaoh's household with all the rights and privileges that, that comes with that. Okay, well, how do you become a member? You're either born there or you get adopted into it by a member of the royal family. Do you see the irony here? That Pharaoh wants to wipe out God's people by throwing them in the Nile. He's completely genocidal, but God uses the very plan that was meant to destroy Moses to save him. Do you see the irony there? 
So now the future savior of Israel can grow up in the most secure, affluent place in Egypt. He's protected from Pharaoh by Pharaoh's daughter. And not only is that, but he's also protected from the grinding effects of slavery on someone who's little. And because he's this insider-outsider, he identifies with the Hebrews, but he can see and understand the cruelty of the Egyptians from the inside. Look, y'all, when we are thinking about our own lives, there are two things we can look at here. We can say, I'm the one that's responsible for my own prosperity. I made this happen. The good things in life, the successes in my life, they came from me. But when things aren't going well, God's forgotten me, or he's angry with me, or things have suddenly kind of spun out of his control, or he's not really there at all, that your and I's perception of the situation is not necessarily trustworthy. Look, when something begins, you don't know how it's going to end. There are lots of things that start off looking great but end up in flames, like moving to Egypt and becoming a slave, or start off looking terrible but turn out okay, like setting your baby into a basket and putting it in the Nile. But what you need to know, what this story is pointing us to, is that God is at work even in really hard circumstances. Even in stuff where you don't see him necessarily, he is at work. Because the right path through life cannot just be the comfortable path. We can be very comfortable and very far from God. Paul, who's no stranger to hardship, himself wrote this in Romans 8. He said, in all things, God works to the good of those who love him. Do you think that Paul means some of the things? Like just the stuff that I can like clearly tell this is a good thing in my life. God is working. Or does he mean all the things? God works in all things for the good of those who love him. I mean, look at Moses' adult life. He flees Egypt as a murderer for protecting his people. And then he becomes a shepherd for 40 years in the desert. I mean, think about how God uses this. One... Moses doesn't do anything important with his life until he's like 50 or 60 years old, which is terrifying to each one of you. (laughs) Two, what does Moses become? He becomes the shepherd of God's people. And what a better way to learn how to do that than become a shepherd of regular sheep, right? And this is just typical of the way that God normally works, that he uses hard things to shape us in good ways. Look, when you want your body to get sculpted or shaped, you go to the SRC, And you walk in there and you don't feel like it, you don't want to do it, but you pick up weights and you lift them and it hurts and you constrain yourselves and you like, maybe you do squats, not all of us. (laughs) Everybody hates leg day. I'm just going to put that out there. It's true. (laughs) But by constraining yourself, by restraining yourself, by putting yourself through a gymnasium, you make yourself stronger. And character is developed in the same way, through restraint and difficulty. And this is just so hard for us as modern people. Because the modern take on character says, you know, this is who I am. I don't care who doesn't like it. I'm going to look inside of myself. I'm going to force it onto the rest of the world. Like the modern take on character is all about self-assertion. But think about the issue of becoming a forgiving person, which all of us, I think, want to do. Forgiveness is an important part of living in a family, of being a friend, Maybe one day being, you know, married. Ooh. Um, it's amazing. You're all fa- afraid of it for no reason. It's amazing. Uh, <laughs> everyone knows the ability to forgive is this crucial part of living life with other people. But to self-assert yourself means that, you know, you don't forgive. You force the way that you feel onto the rest of the people regardless of what needs to happen. I mean, think about the families of the, uh, who lost loved ones in the Charleston Massacre a few years ago. 
These people publicly forgave Dylan Roof, the man who killed their family members. Everybody admired the way they forgive. And what that cost them was this kind of self-renunciation of vengeance. To say, I'm not going to pay you back. But the most natural thing in the world for us is to say, when you hurt me, I'm going to assert myself and I'm going to hurt you back. Look, say, what about this? Say you come here, and this is just, you know, totally theoretical. Say you come here and you meet someone who seems cool and fun and is cute this first semester. And, you know, again, totally theoretical. This never happens. But just say you meet someone like that. And you meet this person, and after just a few weeks, you're like, oh, wow, like, they are perfect. They're incredible. I want to be with them all the time. And then, you know, one thing leads to another, and after a few months, it doesn't work out. You know, this is all theoretical. And you break up with them, or they break up with you, or y'all lose interest. Whatever happens, whatever happens, feelings are hurt. And, you know, it's awkward now, and it's weird, and, you know, people are hurting What will you do? Like the most natural thing in the world would be for you to assert yourself, to hit back, or take them down socially because it's what you feel. Or or you can take the high road and you can forgive them. But the high road is not the easy road. If you take it, it's going to be hard. You're going to constrain yourself and your feelings. You'll have to push your rights aside and not count whatever record of wrongs you might have against that person. It might even hurt to do that. But those sorts of things are the gem in which God works us out and makes us spiritually and emotionally strong. Look, Moses' flight from Egypt was the beginning of a very long spiritual journey that eventually takes him to the position of speaking to God face to face and becoming one of the great leaders of the Bible. But he has to be humbled first. He had to go to God's gym in order to get shaped by God, which means he had to become weak. And then once he's learned humility, he can be used as this instrument of deliverance. But that's the way that God makes people strong. It's through hardship. That's the training ground of the Christian life. And when you and I are armed with the knowledge that God works all things to our good, you can face anything that life in a fallen world throws at you. Look, everyone in here is either getting out of a period of suffering, or about to go into a period of suffering, or is experiencing a period of suffering. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is not, Where is God in that? But the question that we ask ourselves is, how is God going to shape me through this experience? Because the mark of the Christian life is not what happens to us. The mark of the Christian life is who is at work within us. If anything, this story is affirming the reality that wondering where is God and having to wait for Him to work is one of the hardest things in the Christian life, and it's one of the most normal things in the Christian life. It's just part of the experience of God's people. Okay, but what's our certainty that God will work through these things? Because bad stuff happens all the time, right? Look at the end of this, the end of Exodus 2. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. He knew. God remembered His covenant, which is His unbreakable promise. And once He's made that promise, He is all in. He says, I am going to be their God. They are going to be my people. And through that promise, what does he give? A deliverer. Someone who not only knows what the people endure, but who will do something about it. By the end of the story, Moses is not some sort of bystander who's like living in a palace. But he's been pushed down to their lowly position. He knows what it is to do like backbreaking work. 
He gets them, and so he becomes their deliverer. And because God has remembered his covenant and knows the suffering of his people, he sends this deliverer. Well, okay, so I mean, that's a great story about other people in the Bible. But what about me? Who's my deliverer? Look, for you, the question is not, when will God remember his covenant? For you, the question is, how has God remembered his covenant? Because when you're hurting, it can feel like nobody gets how hard this is. I'm the only one that's ever felt this way. I'm alone in this. Isn't that the way it feels sometimes? And this is why Exodus is so important for us. Because all of us have come to college, and collectively we're staying at the crossroads of life. And we're trying to figure out who we are, and what we're going to become, and wondering where is God in that? Where will you fit in? Who will you fit in with? What do you believe about yourself and the world? In many ways, how you answer the challenge of college about your future is rooted in how you answer the question of where is God in your past. And so the question for you is, how has God remembered his covenant, his promises? Saul, before he becomes Paul, is persecuting the early church. He's persecuting Christians, and Jesus shows up and he wants to know, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? Look, you need to know that when you hurt, Jesus hurts. He's pledged himself to you. That he knows, he knows you. That you're experiencing when you're hurt, Jesus is known from his experience too. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is the groan of everyone who has ever suffered. And that is God's groan too. The shadow of Jesus passes over everything in the Old Testament. You can see his outline, his form is apparent. He's there but not known in the way that he's known later. That like Moses, when Christ comes, he's a shepherd. And he lays down his life for his sheep. That for your sake, when he comes, Jesus loses much more than Moses. Why? To die for us. So that God could be faithful to his covenant. So that God would know. And so I'll close with this. Why do Matthew and Mark record that when he's on the cross, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why do they record that? Think about that. Not long ago, I heard a story about a young woman who was, she was hip, a hipster. She was uh, really cool. <laughs> a hip, hipster. Awesome. Uh, <laughs> but she's dating this guy. And they start to, like, ironically, as hipsters are wont to do, start to sing back and forth as they start to date Phil Collins songs, which if you don't know Phil Collins, is like this super cheesy 80s songwriter. And they're as they start to date, singing these songs back to one another and kind of laughing about them. But as they start to date, the songs kind of become their songs, like for real. And they're embarrassed about it, but it's true. And they're loving it and eating up the cheese that Phil Collins is laying out for them. (laughs) But one New Year's night, this guy breaks up with her kind of out of the blue. Like she does not see it coming. She has no speech repaired. It's just wham, out of nowhere. And she says, she, she comes to realize that she's crying on her bedroom floor or crying as she's listening to Phil Collins or crying at the checkout line of the grocery store that like 80% of all songs might be breakup songs. And eventually, to kind of get over this, she decides to write her own breakup song. And she writes it, and she happens to have a connection to the master himself, Phil Collins. And so she sends him her song, And then he kind of critiques it with her on the phone. And 
they're talking about her song and her songwriting. She starts to explain this breakup and kind of what it meant to her. And he just kind of interjects and starts to say, you know, I wrote a lot of my breakup songs when I was going through a divorce. And in that moment as they're talking, you just sort of hear this connection between the two of them. That Phil Collins and this hipster could sing the same song. Have you ever thought about that when God writes himself into the story of the world, that he gives himself a hard story? That he ends at the cross? That his dad, who by all accounts is this great guy, that his friends betray him, that his people reject him and kill him? Why is it that when God has the option to write any story and sing any song, he writes himself a sad song? Why are Jesus' last words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that he could sing your song. So that he could carry the weight of your sins and do something about the misery of sin that we feel as fallen people in a fallen world. But also deliver us from that misery. Do you know what the answer to Jesus' question of why have you forsaken me is? It's you. That you are the answer. That everyone who's ever hurt wants a person beside them who understands that hurt and they can do something about it. We want a deliverer from suffering. God knows the desire of your heart and his answer to that desire is Jesus. It's not that God knows and he could do something. It's that he knows and he is doing something through Jesus. That right now, maybe the reason you're here is so that God will do something in your life and deliver you through these people and through sitting here and listening to Exodus and learning about Jesus and being changed by him and being delivered by him. Not from death to life, but through death and disappointment comes life. That that is the pattern that Jesus sets. That's the pattern that Moses follows. That that is just the pattern of God's people. Look, if God can take the worst thing in history, the death of his son on a cross, and use it for millennia on every continent and every people group to redeem the world, why can't he take the terrible things that have happened in your life and redeem them for your good and for the good of the people that are sitting right there next to you? Why can't he do that? I'm telling you that he is. When we wonder where is God, I want to say that his answer is right here. With his people, around his word, delivered by his son. And that's my offer to you tonight and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you are so good to us to give us a deliverer in your son Jesus, who sings our song, who lives our story, who unites us to yourself, who loves us and sets us free. God, help us to know him, set us free in him. Lord, deliver us from our suffering and our sin because of your suffering and you're taking our sin on the cross. Help us to rest in that. Help us to live in that. Help us to offer that as hope and good news to the world and to UNC. In your name we pray. Amen.